Hello world, what is up? Welcome back to The Feelings Lab. I'm your host, Matt Forte, and for today's episode, we're talking about well-being in a remote world. Let me back up because admittedly, it sounds like we're casting an awfully wide net this week. And that's actually kind of the point. You see, originally, when we were mapping out this season, this episode was intended to just be happiness and working from home. Uh, because generally speaking, most of us can agree being home more with our family, spending less money on commuting and having more time to, say, make a healthy lunch or just pet your dog when you get a little anxious are all pretty big wins in an otherwise kind of dismal time in history. Uh, but the more we dug into things, the broader the scope became. You know, parents are working from home, children are learning from home, doctors are seeing patients from home, movies are skipping theaters and streaming directly to your TV. Heck, I'm doing this whole thing from my attic. Mm -hmm. uh, however, as both Uncle Ben and Aunt May have said, with great power comes great responsibility. I don't know about you, but in the early days of this pandemic, I was living life like I was Kevin McAllister in Home Alone. I was eating ice cream sundaes for dinner, walking around the house at 4 p.m. in my pajamas, jumping up and down on my parents' bed with a big old bowl of popcorn. Uh, some of those are more literal than others, but just like when old Kevin had to go buy himself a new toothbrush, at some point you take stock in what you're doing and you realize it's possible I'm not taking the best care of myself. <laughs> and more so, maybe this happiness is a bit more fleeting than originally thought. Uh, but as I've said before, that's just me. And while I know others who share my experience, I know plenty who don't. Uh, though my ignorance of many things runs deep, one thing I am fully aware of is how lucky I am to even be able to work remotely from my attic, uh, to have spent lockdown with someone I love who loves me back and is somehow not sick of me at all yet. It's a gift. Uh, and as hard as I have genuinely felt things have been over the last two years, by some measures, I'd be a fool not to recognize I also got some stuff that can easily be taken for granted. And if it's hard for me to stay on top of and aware of my personal well-being, what on earth is it like for the rest of us out there and the rest of the people fighting through this global pandemic? Uh, for that matter, how does one even define well-being. For all the growing pains and difficulty in adjusting to a more digital first world, are people feeling better? Doing better? Can you even measure such a thing? As per usual, I've got a ton of questions, but this time I am joined by not one, not two, but three individuals way better equipped than I to have an interesting conversation around this concept. Uh, without any further delay, let's welcome them all to the show. Up first, my co-host, whose brilliance is matched only by his patience for my buffoonery. Dr. Alan Cowan is here once again. Alan, nice to see you as always, sir. How you doing? Doing good. Good to have you. And my goodness, somebody warm up the season one lower <laughs> thirds. It's the return of the deck. <laughs> Professor at UC Berkeley, director at the Greater Good Science Center, and one hell of a TFL co-host, Dr. <laughs> Dacker Keltner is here. Dacker, it's so good Aww. to see you again. How are you? Good. Doing well. It's good to see you, Matt. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Very good. And as for today's guest, he's a New York Times bestselling author, a pioneer in the use of data to identify social change. He was named among the top 100 thought leaders in trustworthy business, and Forbes magazine called him a must-follow marketing mind on Twitter. As CEO of the Harris Poll, I'd say it's a safe bet he has a better picture than anyone on how people are feeling these days. What a great fit for today. I'm super excited to have here with us. Please welcome to the show. John Garisma is here. John, my goodness, what a pleasure. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great, guys. How are you? Really excited to get into this. 
<laughs> Same, man. I am super excited. It's great to have you here. I appreciate you taking time to hang out with us. Uh, gentlemen, let's dig right in. I'm especially curious to hear from each of you how you would define one's well-being. We can explore any overlaps or differences as we go along. John, you are our guest. I'll go to you first. The Harris Poll has its fingers on the pulse. Before we get deep into the numbers and what they say in terms of how we're doing, just in general, in talking to people, how do you define and measure well-being? Oh, wow. That's a great question. You know, we have been in the field studying uh, Americans since the advent of the pandemic back in March of 2020. I think I had hair when I started our project, but uh, <laughs> I believe it. Through, <laughs> through, the, through the course of all this weekly polling, guys, one of the things that was so fascinating was just this interchange of emotions ranging from fear to anxiety yeah to boredom, to loneliness, and they would literally kind of shift with the news cycles all, all through sort of the last couple of years. But I think I would define well-being right now is um, a rising sort of sense of self. And you're going to see that in some of the discussion we get into the fact that there is a massive shift toward uh, mental health and wellness, another big shift toward uh, building balance. And with the labor market being what it is, uh, people that are at work right now feel a stronger sense of freedom and empowerment uh, versus perhaps previous right. generations or pre-pandemic. So I think overall, that that sense of sort of identity and, and well-being is something that is is a real main focus. Yeah, yeah. Alan, as someone at the forefront uh, of quantifying and cataloging human emotion, are there parts of what John said that, that are that are in alignment with your approach and your philosophy? Totally. I also think that it's about emotion and maybe, maybe those go hand in hand, maybe feeling empowered, maybe feeling independent, like you have control over your life, uh, really does factor into feeling good all the time. I mean, I think you had it in your intro math. It's about feeling good and not feeling bad. Um, one of the things people get wrong probably about measuring well-being is that it's not all about one metric. It's about a diversity of experiences. Um, it's about feeling uh, like there's emotional richness in your life mm. um, and that your life isn't uh, kind of flat, that you're not feeling uh, repetitive, uh, that you're forming new memories every day, that you're learning more things. Um, and it can involve feeling negative at times when you want to feel negative. Maybe you want to feel fear in response to a horror movie. Uh, maybe you want to feel sadness at a funeral, get some catharsis out of that. Um, so it's not just about feeling good. It's about feeling the right emotions at the right times. That's awesome. Thank you for that. That helps me a lot because we're in Dakar, We'll get to you in, in just a second because I'm trying to draw a clearer line between happiness and well-being, right? Because for me at first, I was like, when we shifted gears as a team, I was like, okay, I'm into this, but I, I didn't quite grab. I was like, what's the big difference? If I'm happy, I'm well, isn't it the same thing? And so sort of drawing that clearer delineation between the two, it's interesting, you know, can someone outwardly project happiness, but not necessarily be well? Can someone be something else that isn't happy? Can they be sad, but be well. These are the kind of questions that I'm trying to figure out and answer for myself. And uh, Dakar, I'd love your thoughts there. Alan, you kind of answered a little bit of that for me. Yeah, I mean, and I think that I'm going to converge with John and Alan, you know, with measurement wise, this vast literature on well-being asks people, how satisfied are you with life or a couple items like that. But then, but that in some sense is unsatisfying, even though it's really powerful in terms of telling you how the person is doing health-wise, work-wise. And underneath is the real action, which is the emotions that John talked about. Yeah. Are you bored? Are you anxious? Are you exhilarated? Are you interested? Are you grateful? And so I think, you know, part of what Alan's work did is said, 
there are like these 25 pathways to happiness and each of us is figuring them out in this neat mixture. So to me, uh, and Danny Kahneman talked about this too, the Nobel Prize winner. Part of well-being is is your emotional profile. Part of it's your sensory profile, right? That, you know, am I yeah. having good yeah. tastes in life and uh, sense and sounds? So experience is really important and emotions are an important role there. Well, you say experience is important, and that dovetails nicely into one of my other large curiosities. Uh, we were talking just before uh, we hit record there that, John, I was looking at some numbers from data that you had pulled about a year ago and, and at the start of the, not the start, but like halfway through the pandemic or wherever we were. It was 2021, January, I think it was, right? Point. Yeah, exactly. It's all just blah. It's just happened. <laughs> we're all in it. But the, the reason I bring up those numbers, the irrefutable pattern in that data was the stark difference in experience between black and white Americans. Mm. Uh, and, and you've talked to people, not just in America, but all over the world. And I'm curious, you know, how does one account for the differences in backgrounds and culture when trying to measure a sense of well-being, when everyone's definition may be a little different or may have different requirements? Well, it's really obviously in the, in the roots of, of anthropology and trying to understand um, the specific human experiences. Um, we looked through the range of the pandemic, um, various different angles at, at, for example, BIPOC Americans and looking at, at various um, struggles around access hmm. to Wi-Fi and to laptops and, and to all the other things that sort of, you know, dictated, um, you know, systemic racism and other things that obviously the pandemic shed a huge light on. So our focus was really to try to to go in uh, as ethnographers and really try to understand past the numbers into the the feelings and then design very custom questions uh, against the specific issues, whether it was based on race, based on income or other. Can I ask? Can you, you guys are, sorry. Oh, I'm dying to know what you found. <laughs> yeah, this is the sauce, man. Do it. Go for it. Yeah. I mean, it, it was it was incredibly humbling. You know, we found just significant devastating effects, um, particularly among Hispanic Americans and, and black Americans on issues of of access and education. Some of the work that we were doing, Dr. with the CDC, um, we were actually just studying the mental health and wellness of Gen Z um, and down into high school students. And the differences uh, in the well-being of, of BIPOC young people uh, versus sort of the general population were, were significant. And they were, a lot of them were based on, on access inhibitors and, and yeah. other areas like that. So, you know, so much of, of what we see is, particularly with this generation, and I'll see some of it in our data when we talk about it, but like, it's a generation that's interrupted. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so they, they feel, and if you think about, I think it's Strauss and Howe has that fantastic theory around um, transitional values versus core values. You know, transitional values being we all share the same thing, reckless, live for the moment, ego, and all those things you do between 16 and 24. Right. But core values were the reasons why my my grandma used to steal the lemons at the Red Lobster, and I thought she was insane. <laughs> but I'm so fascinated to see what we're going to see out of this generation because they really feel agitated and, and interrupted. And so there's yeah. this significant desire to move forward. Not sure what you guys are seeing. Yeah. 
it's uh, just real quick. The, the your grandmother stealing the lemons from Red Lobster. It's just so funny you bring that up. <clears throat> My wife and I have often talked about what is going to be our lasting thing coming out of this that like our kids and grandkids look at and say like, I can't believe they still do that. We, we thought at first it was going to be wiping down the groceries, but we let that go a couple of months ago. So it's like, what's going to be the thing that we carry with us forever now? And it's interesting. I, I'm not excited to see, but curious yeah, to see what yeah. sticks and what doesn't. Um, if nobody else has any other questions, just going deeper into that, I wanted to talk just a little bit because I'm reminded of a, a thought about age. If this maybe is too broad, uh, we're talking about different backgrounds, different ethnicities, but what about age? Because uh, I would assume, especially in the pandemic, older people are prioritizing safety because they're maybe at higher risk and younger folks fear missing out on socialization and, and these huge milestones in life more so than getting sick. So, you know, how, how do the ingredients for one's well-being evolve as they mature? Well, I mean, you know, the, there's a famous finding, and, and I'm really curious what John is uncovering during this interruption. And I think that is a very deep way to frame what we're going through, especially for certain age groups. But there is this U-curve shape that's been replicated in 46 countries, you know, that happiness starts to drop towards the middle of life, and then it rises. And, and the wisdom there is, as you age, you start to, uh, you recognize the fleeting nature of life. You realize friendship is, and love is everything. Success is secondary. Uh, and there are structural reasons why your life's a little bit better, hopefully. But, you know, that's the backdrop of now we head into the pandemic and what happened. Uh, what are you seeing, John? It's exactly it, Docker. I mean, it's interesting on the the bottom of your curve, as you described, we did a study two weeks ago looking at um, supply chain issues and sort of the role of consumers and how they felt about them. And the single biggest demographic group that was the most freaked out were millennial moms. Wow. And uh, all I could think of yeah. was you just imagine that household, yeah. you know, between work from home, sometimes schooling from home oh and supply chain issues where, you know, the the products aren't showing up in time. And it just really showed this incredible stressor. And the really interesting thing about it was, is that they were willing um, to spend on average significant premiums just for guarantees that stuff would show up. Right. So almost a warranty. Yeah. Uh, and I think it was something like a 15 point difference in any other yeah. age group on the whole other side, you saw um, older Americans um, the first to go back and socialize after the pandemic, the first ones to get back to church even though many of them probably that yeah. might not have been the most wise thing. Yeah. Um, you know, higher rates of vaccination yeah. among seniors, obviously, and just this sense of optimism to get, get back. And the number one word, I, one of you guys used it just a couple minutes ago, um, was gratitude. Their number one emotion was gratitude, wow. which I thought was really interesting versus other generations that were talking about annoyance and, and other things. See, this is why we need data, though, because that's so telling, you know, that... The elderly yeah. are finding this gratitude that the rest of our culture kind of needs to think about, right? And and the, the pressures on a young family where your happiness and well-being starts to really drop <laughs> is, is yeah. problematic uh, even more so. As a demographic, they were like a Ferrari in the garage. I mean, they were just ready to go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Oh, my God. And this is getting back to work. But does that also have to do not just with age, but with digital connectedness and the fact that the younger Americans weren't experiencing as much of a loss of those connections because they're more digitally connected than the older generations? 
Definitely. We saw other statistics of, of definitely during the, the, the bottom end of spring of 2020, just significant isolation um, and concern. Um, but that obviously kind of came out uh, through the other end, as we discussed. Well, I think I saw some other data from you guys, too, that was really interesting was it wasn't a massive number, but there was more than I would have expected of boomers and like Gen uh, Xers that were adopting like QR codes and video conferencing and like in a way, uh, a generation that might have gotten left behind by a lot of this technology has been forced to sort of figure it out and adopt it in a way they wouldn't have normally, uh, which is kind of mind blowing mm -hmm. to me to think of that, that a whole generation is is coming along for the ride that might have sat it out previously. Has, have those numbers held up? Are we still seeing that? Yeah, absolutely. It was really interesting to see, perhaps out of necessity, but um, everyone sort of had to learn to use Amazon Prime and Grubhub and Zoom and all these <laughs> other things, as you guys know. And what got really interesting was when we looked at digital acceleration, it wasn't just based you know, on, on sort of millennials and Gen Z. It was boomers and, and even... Uh, some seniors. God. And one of the really telling stats was the high level of usage and excitement among boomers and seniors for using telehealth during the pandemic. Yeah. Clearly, you got COVID. Yeah. You don't want to go into a doctor's office with, you know, six-month-old magazines and lots of people coughing. And so the telemedicine became sort of a telehealth became a, a necessity. Um, and it became something that's widely popular. And I think in our data, 60% of of uh, Boomers and seniors, uh, we're going to continue telehealth even wow. after the pandemic. That's profound. Wow. John, I have to ask you, I'm sorry, since you're here, but, um, and then what about our thinking about work? Like what, you know, what are you seeing about, you know, younger people entering into careers, the elderly in the last stages of a career? What's, what's happening? What's been changing? So many things. I mean, I think, Doc, one of the really interesting things, first of all, is that just in our data as of two weeks ago, 71% of Americans um, now believe that COVID will be here with us forever. Um, so we've moved into the endemic phase. Right. So we kind of asked this two-pronged question, you know, do you think COVID will be beaten or do you think it's just something we're gonna have to live with? And so I think we are settling into forgetting about the novelty. Maybe 2021, right. the word was transitory. You know, the new word we'll have to come up with is definitely something more anchored in, in permanence. And so... Right. When, when we look at the data, you know, there's a almost a third, a third, a third uh, when we asked them if it were up to you among professional workers, would you work from home? 36 percent. Uh, would you work at the office? 31 percent. Or would you work in a hybrid? 33 percent. Yeah. And uh, what's interesting about that is that's obviously, you know, sort of equally split. But, you know, the hybrid is sort of by default winning out because they would go either on either side. So if you, if you took two slices of those pie, you kind of have two thirds of, of Americans would be yep. fairly happy wow. uh, taking one of those options. Wow. The real issue thing is Gen Z are the ones that really want to be back in the office. And that's back to that, that point we were talking about a little bit earlier. Um, and also we've noticed a 14 point drop in the interest in working from home uh, since yeah. uh February of last year. So people are definitely Wild. getting burned out. Yeah. John, how long have you guys, I think you mentioned this at the very beginning, and, and uh, forgive me for not knowing, but how long have you been uh, polling and taking numbers like that? Did you start, were you doing it prior to the pandemic or has it really been throughout the pandemic that you've been focusing these efforts? Yeah. So what we did is we jumped in, uh, I think it was the second week of March. 
Okay. And um, we put it all up on our on our website for free. It's just called the COVID Tracker, and just started um, you know working with various health, uh, public health officials, journalists. We're just looking for data, and we just thought we'd wiki the whole thing. And so it's all up there. And for the particular uh, nerds that love to get into the tabs and everything, okay. it's it's all there. And we're wow. actually trying well, to work with some great universities to trend some of the data and really understand it. But it's it's pretty robust. Which is pretty amazing. And I only bring that up and ask that because I'm curious just about the rate at which things are changing, the fluctuation of the data points, you know, to change that much over time. It's it's really interesting to see. Um, one of the other big variables that I wanted to ask about is because you guys are the way we get this data, the way you get the data, you go, you develop, you develop your questions, you ask your questions, people answer them. There we go. And I think of like, if I go out and I see someone, right, and they say, hey, how you been, regardless of how I'm actually doing, I'd say conservatively, 99% of the time I lie and I just go, I'm great, things are good, how are you doing, right? And like the closest I get to honesty, and this is how you know if I like you, Dagger, what happened before we started the show? You said, how are you doing? And I said, I'm fine, things are fine. That's the closest I get when I like somebody and I'm comfortable, and even that's sugarcoating. If we ask someone how they're doing, because I know I'm not alone in this, that there's a, a, a tendency to sort of inflate that information and, and maybe communicate uh, false information, even if they say they're great, right? How do we know how much of that picture is, is missing? How can we account for that? I'm curious. Yeah, I'd love for you guys to, to jump in from your experience. Alan, what do you think? But I, I imagine you got some thoughts on this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are occasions where people's reported well-being diverges from other indicators of well-being, like whether they're smiling, their physiological indicators. There's a famous study that compared liberals and conservatives, and generally conservatives poll as being happier and higher in satisfaction with life, but liberals turn out to smile more <laughs> and uh, use more positive language. Uh, so there's definitely places where that just diverges. And then the question is, you know, when we're looking at things like pandemic data, are people happier working from home, et cetera? Are we, are we analyzing data where, where there's a divergence between people's reported well-being and how they actually feel or other indicators? Yeah, and you know, but yeah, I mean, sorry, go ahead. I mean, I, you know, I've spent a lot of my career studying facial muscle movements and psychophysiology and Mm -hmm. the voice. And, but, you know, it's, you're right, people do inflate a little. In other countries, they uh, are underestimate their happiness or underreported some East Asian cultures. But man, those questions, when carefully crafted, like the work that, that John does, you know, what we know is if you say, like, I'm an eight on a 10 point scale of happiness. Your, your immune system looks different. Your brain function looks different. Your life expectancy is different. Your social relationships. Wow. I mean, some of these questions are, <laughs> you know, you can, you can prevent, you can sneak around them a bit, but they, they're meaningful. I was a skeptic going yeah. into the literature and I'm impressed, you know, so, um, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think one of the arts of, of this is to ask the question in a couple of different ways, because uh-huh. there are mm. definite questions that uh, can get you into just a straight political answer. Um, uh-huh. It's just you're just going to line up immediately. There's trigger words that we know uh, that exist. Where people just go, oh, I got to get in my camp and here's my answer. Yeah. Um, but the other one, you know, there's obviously, you know, you're bringing up the point of social desirability, biases. You know, that was obviously explained a lot of uh, what people said and what they did uh, in the 2016 election. Yeah. Um, but the one that we uh, really like a lot kind of as an adage is we really hate when we see 
you know, any kind of answer back from a Harris poll that has 80% of people because yeah. no, there's no 80% of anything. We call that the ice cream versus carrots question, yeah. hmm. which is I say, would you rather have ice cream or carrots? Well, 80 to 90% of people, maybe 99 are going to say, going to say ice cream. So we always try to put a trade off into a question is another way to look at Interesting. it. You know, is that something you guys had to, is that something you kind of had to figure out and adapt to or, or, or uh, an idea you had going in? Like, did you learn where there's some results that came back and you're like, well, okay, I see this is happening a lot. Let's try and f- massage this a different way. So people can have more options. Like how, how did that come to pass? We definitely had, you know, bad data coming back or just yeah. questions that we didn't yeah. feel super reliable about. And then, so we started to put a cost against it. You know, yeah. what, do you, what would you, what do you think about uh, more government spending? Great. Well, what if that raised your taxes? Well, maybe not so great. Yeah. So try to try to put costs or trade-offs, uh, constraints mm-hmm. to questions is a, sometimes a great way to get honesty out. You, you kind of touched a little bit on this, a lot on it in the beginning, uh, but I'm curious about the significance or the importance of uh, emotion within the work. You guys are trying to put a number uh, on the things that are the hardest to pin down and quantify, right? And sort of measure movement and focus. How, how much of a role does emotion play understanding the emotion of who you're asking? And, and do the numbers come back ever tell you anything about the emotions of the people that you're interviewing? I'm just very curious of the significance of it all because it's one of the most ineffable things. And here we are trying to put like these numbers down and understand and, and record this data. Yeah. I mean, oftentimes, and there's lots of different uh, practitioners that, that have different strategies, but we often tend to definitely go in and, and, qual our, our surveys and try to really understand the human emotions and go in and and do um, in-person interviews, ethnographies mm-hmm. to try to really understand the context. Um, as I said earlier, we're always going to be, you know, working with researchers and, and journalists that really understand a given audience or a given cultural context. Um, and then, you know, you feel a little bit better about your, your quant sort of coming back. But again, it's, I think, really important at the back end also to try to model the data to understand what people saying is that really what they're doing and there's all kinds of ways at least in the business world of sort of taking purchase data actual you know usage uh, data and comparing that against stated to sort of see what emotions may be uh, emerging I mean I read this morning a real interesting thing that's come back it's about bulk buying is back in a huge way <laughs> and so there's got to be some really significant emotions right guys yeah. that's behind people are are bulking up in the middle of uh, yeah. COVID seemingly kind of declining. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Is there, I didn't realize bulk buying was back. What a bummer. Their, their rationale was, uh, was uh, inflation. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, all right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, you know, as we talk more and more, uh, Alan, about the ways AI is becoming more ubiquitous on this show, be it personal assistants like Alexa, the metaverse, or a billion other things. Uh, I think Apple actually just yesterday, I saw announced the acquisition of a company that uses AI to compose original music on the fly to match your mood or vibe, which they're talking about all these different applications. It begs the question, you know, if it's somewhat challenging to get a 100% honest answer out of a person about how they truly feel, how how do you guys train AI and how do we train an AI to detect the whole story? And, uh, you know, we've heard some great ways that humans can try and uh, manage to get the story, but how do we get uh, a, a digital person to kind of detect how I feel accurately? Yeah. I mean, with, with our experiments, we're able to actually induce emotion and you can show people really strongly evocative videos and get people to spontaneously form expressions and report how they're feeling. That's a good way of doing it. 
Um, and you can do this with social context or outside of a social context. There's a lot of studies at a smaller scale that have looked at um, those kinds of influences. Uh, you can uh, play music. Um, you can get people to read stories, all these different induction methods. And then, of course, just asking people how they feel spontaneously, ecological momentary sampling. Um, and they all have you know, benefits and drawbacks. Um, I'm curious, actually, uh, you know, so we, you know, we, we look at people's responses in terms of their nonverbal behavior. Um, and sometimes people's self-reported emotions, and this is very interesting, um, are not as reliable as their nonverbal responses. Mm -hmm. uh, you can actually detect what the average person's self-report is from their nonverbal response better than you can detect their own self-report from their nonverbal response. And this is generally speaking true. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, you know, part of it is just, you know, there's so much nuance in people's feelings and they don't spend that much time thinking about what the best words are and how, what, is, what is the intensity. And there's also convergence across people and how they respond to something in a given situation. But that, you know, begs the question of, if, if John, if, has anyone sort of thought about in polling, looking at not just what people say, but how people say it? You mentioned in-person interviews, right? Is there any effort to kind of quantify what, what you get out of those in-person interviews that you don't get when you're uh, just asking the question? Well, that's the exciting thing that, you, you know, you bring up about um, AI. And I think the place that we're getting really excited about is the ability to, you know, document interviews and emotions yeah. and then be able to sort of yeah. uh, tab that and, and connect it uh, into data. I think what's coming in the next several years is going to be really exciting. Yeah. I think it'll kind of do a meta on our business <laughs> in a great way, which is it's going to become far more immersive yeah. and far more, um, you know, bringing the qual into sort of a more quantitative realm yeah. and bringing those two uh, learning areas uh, closer together. But I'm curious too what you guys think, not to shift back to the work piece, oh. but um, like how AI is also going to, you know, go into work. And one theory I kind of have is that you just have a whole generation of gamers and gaming behaviors that could potentially become really interesting workplace behaviors uh, <laughs> if all this kind of comes together. I don't know what you guys think about that. <laughs> Well, one of the things that's really interesting about this data that, that people yeah, don't want to hear, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, oh, could, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, but even even just regarding AI, one of the things that's that looking at technology generally and how it's affecting work. One of the things that's really interesting that I, I think can't possibly not be true is that the reason people are are okay working remotely is because we have these technologies for communication. They actually reduce the level of social isolation. That's associated, otherwise would be associated with remote work. And if, if you were asked people the question, do they want to return to the office? And it was during the Spanish influenza, right? And people were at home <laughs> and they really couldn't do much or they didn't, or they were completely isolated with no ability to, you know, text each other or talk or FaceTime and all that. I think people would be desperate to go back into the office um, in those scenarios. And so, you know, technology has already tremendously has to have influenced um, our ability to, to work remotely. And, it can only increase with AI, yeah. right? With with uh, the introduction of AI tools to kind of uh, increase the immersiveness of uh, remote work, our ability to communicate in virtual environments, um, how easily we can sort of get a hold of each other, ask each other questions, um, how easily we can have kind of conversational asides, the things that definitely happen in person don't happen as well remotely. Um, you know, a lot of those things require AI because AI can tell you when people want to communicate with each other, how, how do you kind of surface those things to each other? Because everything is about notifications. When you get a notification, 
nobody wants the notification right away. People want a sense of the urgency of what needs to be attended to. Um, people want suggestions as to when they should break off into video meetings or send audio messages. And all of that is going to be driven by AI. For sure. Uh, Decker, you seem particularly tickled by that idea as I was. I was just curious. Uh, yeah. uh, I, I mean, it's, I've, you know, one part of the question is how does AI change work? And, and like Alan's saying, like just the, the richness of the information. That, and I think it's going to make work more horizontal where information is flowing in both directions between managers and teams and, and, you know, you become more creative. But the gaming aspect is a separate process that John uh, I think has hit upon a big idea about work culture now. Like when I lecture, the days of lecturing from the blackboard with an outline, those are toast. <laughs> right. And it's like right. full on game. It's, you know, quizzes <clears throat> and images and videos and, you know, fe people feeding in stuff. Uh, so it's an interesting possibility uh, of how we wouldn't have anticipated that technology would change work is to gamify it. Which might be good, but so, yeah, and it's just so interesting that they have an, uh, a generation that's just way more accustomed to being engaged yeah. in a completely different way. Yeah, exactly. That's right, uh, which yeah. is good news, really good news. Yeah, for sure, and exhausting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's easy from our conversation to kind of get a sense of why it's important to uh, to have this data and to understand these things. But I'm curious to whom is this data most valuable? You know, is it the government? Is it AI researchers? Is it is it major companies? You know, are you seeing any trends, uh, John, in particular, in, in terms of who cares to know uh, of, of our uh, our well-being and, and how we're feeling? Who's asking yeah. you for this information? Oh, can you tell me that? I just realized I might be asking <laughs> you a question you can't answer. But can you uh, talk about any trends in terms of who's curious about this? Lots of corporations. Are, are really interested. I mean, I think there's a theme a thread that's run that's through a lot of our projects th this past year has been around mental health and wellness of employees, mental health and wellness of, of their customers. Um, that's just become a, a very a sort of interesting uh, area. You know, it's so funny is that you said I didn't think you'd say corporations only because I was I was going through the data that you had sent over and there was a little thing that jumped out. There was like 40 percent of people are reporting companies plan to be full time in office within the next six months, even if that's not what the employees would prefer. Yeah. And that to me, I was like, all right, so companies don't care what we want. So they're not the ones asking. But no, they do care. They want to know. They they just not they don't care if we're happy about like I'm confused. There's like a disconnect. Yeah, their policies aren't lined up yet. I mean, so I think yeah. this we're in this situation right now of a little bit of denial, right? And yeah. companies don't quite have all the information on how we've changed as people, as as professional workers during the pandemic. And one of the things we saw in our new data this weekend, we just asked, "Are you happier uh, at home working, or are you happier at the office?" Just straight uh, choice, and forty six percent of professional workers are happier uh, working remotely wow. versus 20% working in person. Wow. Wow. Um, you know, what really gets interesting um, is that 26% say they feel they can accomplish more work goals, they're more productive, and that's only two points behind being in the office. Yeah. So obviously, when you take into account um, a lot of the other factors here, you have a, a, an emerging group of people um, that want that hybrid because they feel yeah. it can be more productive. They have more more life work balance, which is all in the data. But I do want to hit on one thing, if we could do it at yeah. some point, real quick. You know, Doctor, you brought up that point about horizontal, and 
I took that also to just talk about inclusivity in the workplace, yeah. right? Because there's such a big focus right now on, on DEI. And I don't think companies quite understand what they have with remote work. Yeah. And one of the questions that we put in the survey this week um, is we asked, where are you most likely to feel the following? And we gave them a choice working from the office or working from home. And we asked questions like, able to speak my mind freely. Yeah. Hmm. Where would you guys think that would be in the office or at home? Home. 70% at home. Yeah. Um, being able to speak without being interrupted, 70%. Um, me, I feel heard and respected by leadership was about equal, um, even with the, the remote barrier. But in all these numbers, they go up almost 15 points among women and BIPOC wow. women. Wow. And what gets really interesting in here is you kind of go deeper into the data. Um, they're also feel particularly women in BIPOC women feel relaxed, happier, more confident, more personally fulfilled and more energized working remotely. God. And it took us a while to start to understand. And I'm curious what you guys feel about this is that I think what they're telling us and we see it in some of the other data is that there are all these old school 2019 performative behaviors that women uh, have had to go through into the yeah. pale, stale male workplace. Yeah. And that doesn't exist in this realm. Yeah. And that could be a really good thing. That's profound. That is true. <laughs> it's truly <laughs> profound. I mean, that's a cultural shift, right? That we didn't expect. And, and but what if HR directors understood that and stopped trying to bring everybody back to the office and said, hey, you get wider right. talent pool, Right. We can go get accomplish all the things we want, get all these great new thinkers from all these different backgrounds, and they might feel happier, too. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's been uh, something I've observed just through some of my friends and in, in, uh, being not necessarily combative, but like their HR department, just not necessarily getting it. And a lot of times the interpretation is the, the concern is more that we're paying rent for an office that we need to fill more so than, you know what I mean? Like they're, they're not yet ready to adapt somehow, but it's just very, I'm wondering what the tipping point will be when they will start to adapt when, because if it's not now. What 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 more are they waiting for, right? Like, what is, what catalyst could possibly create that larger shift? Um, but that, yeah, I couldn't have said any better. That is profound. This is why we have the smart people on the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> it's truly profound. Um, Alan, any thoughts uh, on that bit of information from John there? I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and you can see probably when you go into the office, uh, there's more posturing with sort of body posture. Yeah. There's kind of more, there's more of an influence of social, uh, uh, I don't know, attitudes probably yeah. or yeah. you know, the, the people of certain demographics probably physically are closer to each other, hang out together, have certain conversations, talk at the urinal or whatever, yeah. <laughs> these kinds of things that are completely removed when uh, you're working from. So I can see it kind of being an equalizer. I wonder though if there's any resulting isolation. It just seems it seems odd to me that they, that nobody's talking about the increase in social isolation that could result yeah. from that. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure if yeah. that's because my prediction would be wrong. If I if I if I made the prediction before the pandemic, I would have assumed that there would be a tremendous increase in social isolation due to the fact that people aren't physically together and that that would reduce people's well-being. I don't know that that's actually happened. That, that's definitely a downside in, in the data, but that's again back to Alan why they really like the hybrid idea. Yeah. Yeah. And the number one thing is particularly driven by um, 
working women, moms, yeah. and also young people, Gen Z, is flexibility. Yeah. And we've got some just yeah. great data where Gen Z will trade off salary for flexibility. Wow. And so, you know, just figuring out companies that, you know, companies yeah. are supposed to be agile. They're agile in their supply chains, usually, yeah. and in their innovation. Like, if they could think of ways to be agile with their professional workers, yeah. it just could be a really interesting changing dynamic for companies. Yeah, it's I love just, hybrid. I think we're hybrid. I think you're, you said you mentioned you were hybrid. Um, just to play devil's advocate, though, isn't there a chance that the people who do choose choose to come to work physically, um, and it may actually end up being people of certain demographics, and they're hanging out together socially? Mm-hmm. Are they are they are they going to experience unfair career advantages as a result of that? That that is an unknown, but there's definitely in the current data people feel that there isn't a significant difference. And maybe that's be happening. That's the time we're in right now because people aren't yeah. in the office. We don't have yeah. the FOMO yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, historically speaking, has, has any other technological change had such a significant impact on people's well-being? I, you talk about just how profound that uh, finally sort of giving a voice to a whole a section of society that we, we didn't even think to listen to in this regard. Like, of course, you feel more comfortable. All of this makes sense. We just didn't have the data. We didn't know to look at it. Has anything like this ever happened before? My gut says no, but, but you know, you guys know the history better than I do. Technologically speaking, has anything propelled us in a similar way before? Or is this all uncharted territory? Well, I always champion this one, but the birth control pill uh, ch- changed society. I think it was the number one, you know, people would say the computer, uh, 20th century, um, before birth control pill, women had 5.4 children after 2.7. They went into work. They got less depressed. I mean, it was it was game changer. But this and yeah. that was because it changed the social arrangements. Uh, and I think what John is pointing to is this pandemic has changed in complex ways our social arrangements vis-a-vis work. And 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 good, and we've got to adapt to the, uh, hopefully yeah. based on data. So that'd be my vote. But Alan, what do you think? Anything then? Have you ever seen anything like it? You think we ever will again? What you- the slide projector. <laughs> Probably, yeah. The mechanical pencil was a big deal for me. I, uh... Well, you know, what's really interesting is that, you know, I was at Google before the pandemic and people didn't already didn't go come together physically for meetings, even if they were, you know, maybe three minute walk away from each other. They would take meetings remotely. (laughs) And so so the change must have happened before, you know, before the pandemic, companies like that. Unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're coming into the home stretch. I just want to, uh, b- before we start to wrap things up and get out of here, John, I know you said you had a lot, you, you brought more questions than I did at this and God bless you for it. Uh, any big things we haven't gotten into? I want to, was there something that you had on your pad that you wanted to make sure we touched on before we uh, wrapped up or pivoted anywhere else tonight? No, I just really enjoyed this conversation. And, uh, you know, there's so much other data we can get into, but there's this significant shift in the workplace um, connected around people feeling happier and more productive and fulfilled, I think is potentially really interesting. Awesome. And there's going to be a whole bunch of new Peter Drucker management books being written yeah. in the next sort of five to seven years. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. Alan, anything from your side? I know you had jotted some stuff down. I don't want to steamroll any of your questions as well. If you had anything you wanted to throw out before we get out of here. I think we covered everything, actually. Um, I thought maybe we'd talk a little bit more about 
how you can get more multifaceted measures of well-being, how that might factor into all of this. But I think a lot of it's just unknown. Um, and, you know, more is good, of course, but, uh, but we just don't know um, whether the measures of well-being that the people who are working remotely uh, currently are, are, are biased in some way or, you know, maybe favor near-term kind of well-being over sort of long-term well-being, maybe working yeah. remotely. Uh, will eventually be worse for people. The other, actually, other, another question. Maybe this sort of um, contextualizes this a little bit, and, and, and this is kind of more of a thought experiment question. Um, is, is John kind of or analogy? Uh, when you ask kids who are staying home from work if they want to go back to school, is their answer no? I would rather continue to be <laughs> doing school remotely. Uh, that's a great question. They. We ask it like we talked about earlier. We ask it in different ways. If you just say straight school, they the numbers are pretty low. <laughs> when you talk about socializing with your friends and getting back and playing sports and all that, you get a different answer. Okay. Yeah. To the to the young workers, that's the number one reason Gen Z want to be back in the office. It isn't mentoring; it's uh, socialization with your peers and all the stuff that happens. You know, they have yeah. to, you know that <laughs> as a. As a for sure. And Alan, you kind of answered uh, what one of my questions was going to be, which was uh, just before that, which was what is missing from all of this da da uh, data acquisition, you know, and all this measurement? What what is what is missing? What would you like to be able to do? What bit of information would you like to be able to get or gather that you currently can't sort of blue sky uh, and, and you kind of tipped your cap a little bit there. You, uh, John, when you said AI in the next five to 10 years is going to change everything dramatically. But um, if you could elaborate, not necessarily on that, but in general, what what do you sometimes look at the data and feel is missing? Like, oh, I wish I had a way to to find out this or, or quantify X, Y, and Z. Is, is there anything like that? Yeah. I mean, for all of these measures, um, I trust uh, people's reported well-being. I think it's generally really valid and really important. It's always going to be the kind of a ground truth measure you need. You need to to know people, whether people think they're happy, whether people are reporting satisfaction with life. Um, I think that uh, it's going to be really important to complement that with more passive measures as time goes on so that you can just gather more continuous measures of well-being at a broader scale with more people involved, be more inclusive, um, capture more sectors of society, yeah. um, and it even you know, start to capture how... Um, AI is a technology are affecting people yeah. um, because you want to be able to go backwards and start to optimize technologies for well-being. Um, and so I think there's going to be a transition um, probably toward collecting more multifaceted measures of well-being for that, for the purposes of sort of uh, gaining more insight into people's well-being from a polling approach. Um, but that will also provide an opportunity to uh, develop measures that don't even require asking people. Um, you, if you can compare those two data sources, you have video of people answering a question or you just have video and then you have people answering the question. Can you predict the answer to whether people are happy or satisfied with life from the video alone or from images alone or from language? Deploy that at a large scale, optimize AI systems for that, um, and then validate it again on, on report periodically. But, but I think more and more as decisions are being made at a really rapid minute scale by AI, you're going to need stuff like that. Alan, can I wow. ask, would you see um, med tech and biometrics and all that coming into the workplace, even with the issues of privacy? Because you could totally see ways that you could capture some pretty interesting data. Yeah. Well, I think it's really important to think about what is, you know, there are real issues of privacy. Like we need to understand who's able to access the data. Is it exacerbating power imbalances? Is my boss able to access more data about 
what I'm doing day to day than I want my boss to access or the government to access. And those are real issues of privacy. But then there's uh, you need to separate that from perceived issues of privacy. And sometimes those diverge. Um, if the data is being analyzed only locally on your device, um, and if it's being reported in a way that is aggregated, you know, so that so that your personal, uh, you know, all of your personal data is being kept private, um, but there's decisions being made on the basis of aggregate metrics. That's not really a privacy issue anymore, I don't mm. think. Because mm. algorithms seeing your data is not concerned. Algorithms already process your data all the time, by the way. Like mm. every single picture that you take on any phone is being processed by lots of algorithms, by compression algorithms, by sorting algorithms, um, by search algorithms that are performed locally on your phone. Um, and then, you know, once you upload things online, all kinds of algorithms are analyzing things. Um, and the question isn't what are algorithms able to access? It's what they're doing with it and who has access to the output. Um, and so, if we can separate those things, I don't think I think you can you can pursue you know, better metrics without without infringing on privacy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That was just a big thing recently with um, well, not to bring up Apple again, but they had uh, there was an algorithm that they were trying to uh, analyze people's photos to prevent the, you know, the proliferation of, of child pornography. And while the intentions were pure, the, the reality was people weren't willing to, to divulge all of their yeah. personal information in pursuit of this. They were like, so I understand what you're trying to do, but you're saying you have to look at all of my photos all the time and gauge all these different things. And what about a false report? What if that goes to the it was just this whole thing and eventually they just kind of slowed backed away from it and they were like all right it was an idea we're not doing yeah. it it's not it's not it's yeah. not gonna do the thing anymore it's, it's just really interesting to see how it grows and yeah have some flows. and there are real concerns like even without privacy concerns there's manipulation concerns maybe the algorithms yeah. are doing things with your data that you don't want them to do even without anybody ever seeing it uh, mm -hmm. maybe they're using it to manipulate you instead of using it to optimize systems for your well-being which is what you probably want and agree to so, yeah. Guys, I got like nine more episodes worth of content and questions. I'm so mad that we're running out of time. But uh, unfortunately, this is what happens when I have very smart and busy people on the show. You have uh, complicated schedules, and I must adhere and honor those wishes. I would do anything for more, but this is the reality. I have to wrap things up. Uh, but my goodness, what a treat to have all of you here today um, with me to talk. This has just been so cool. John, a sincere true thank you uh, for taking time to hang out with us tonight and and all the perspective and data you brought with you just what an absolute treat to have you on the show i really appreciate it john thank Thanks. you so much thank you guys such a such an honor uh, all mine uh, alan a pleasure as always uh dacker i won't lie i was worried i'd never hear the sweet dulcimer <laughs> tones of a keltner again but here you are and uh fantastic to have you back you. sir yeah. don't be a stranger uh, thanks to all of you. And thanks to all of you out there, our listeners, for joining us on another episode of The Feelings Lab. We'll be back next week with a new guest and a whole bunch of new questions, one of which may even be yours. How is that possible, you ask? Well, if you have a question, send it our way. We're at the Feelings Lab at Hume.ai. T-H-E-F-E-E-L-I-N-G-S-L-A-B at H-U-M-E dot A-I. I personally delete all the spam in that mailbox. So make my day and do your job. Fill it out with something worth reading and make me smile, all right? That's going to do it for now. Farewell, my friends from the Feelings Lab. I'm Matt Forte. Thanks again, everybody, and please stay safe out there. <laughs>